wee disclaimer before we start, I'm a bit jet-lagged and a bit sleep-deprived, so <laughs> my concentration levels aren't, aren't the best, so please bear with me this morning as I try and navigate through things. So, over the last few weeks, we've looked at uh, what it is to pray like Paul, but specifically what it's like to pray with Paul with hope, uh, what it's like to pray like Paul in, in order to seek the presence of God, uh, what it is to pray like Paul with thanksgiving, and last week KJ looked at what it is to pray like Paul with love. So this week we continue with our series and we'll, I'll be looking at what it is to pray like Paul with knowledge. And to help unpack that, we'll be reading from Colossians 1, verse 9 through 14, which should appear. Uh, so I'll read through that, <coughs> but please follow if you've got your Bible, and it's the CSB version. So it says, <coughs> For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom, <clears throat> and spiritual understanding, so that you may work, work, may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance and the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom, of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God bless the reading of his word. So let me start with saying I had a really hard time putting this together. It was really tough. Uh, there's so much packed into the five verses. It was really difficult to know what to include and what to leave out. I could honestly speak for an hour in verse 9 before even moving on. And <clears throat> so bearing that in mind, I've tried to condense things as best I can. And just to touch on things, I felt God was leading me to say in respect to the whole passage. But as I've said, it could be unpacked in much greater depth. So I would really encourage you to investigate this passage in your own time and really dig into it. Because it's just packed with things. So please, please take some time to look at it. Uh, look up Bible study tools. Do what you need to do. There's a lot in it uh, that will help you in respect to your prayer life. One of the books I looked at to try and help me with this is a book with Don Carson. It's called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. I think Mark and KJ have mentioned this book as well. It's excellent. So that's a resource that you could think about. But in the outline of that book, Carson outlines what he thinks the church most urgently needs as it seeks to cope with the challenges and pressures we face in a contemporary secular society. So in summary, Carson asks the reader the following questions in respect to what the church most urgently needs. So he suggests, does the church need more or better evangelism? Or does it need more or better seminaries or education? Or is the greatest need of the church just simply to plant more churches and try and grow? Or does the church simply need to demonstrate greater degrees of integrity uh, and generosity to the watching world? On him. <clears throat> um, so he acknowledges these, these things and more are important however he concludes what the church most urgently needs is a deeper knowledge of God so he writes I'll put the quote up so you can follow along he says clearly all these things are important I would not want anything I've said to be taken as a disparagement of evangelism and worship a diminishing of importance of purity and integrity a carelessness about discipline Bible study but there is a sense in which these urgent needs are merely symptomatic of a far more serious lack. The one thing that we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. So we need to know God better 
And that's a very simple statement, but a very challenging one. And if Carson's correct in what he's saying, it's not only the most urgent need of the church, it's the most urgent need in the life of the believer. Our most pressing concern should be that we know God better. So it's unsurprising that Paul's prayer to the Colossian church is that they would have a deeper knowledge of God so that we'd know his will and recognise his expectations for their life. He clearly recognises that it's the greatest need of the Colossian church is to know God better. And that being the case, I think it's fair to say it's the deepest need for us at BBC is that we know God better. So let's dig into the passage and we'll see what God has to say in respect to knowing him better and what that might mean for our lives as followers of Christ. So starting in verse 9, it says, <clears throat> For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We have asked that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So I say there's loads in this verse. Honestly, I could talk for ages about it, but <clears throat> I'll try and condense it as best I can. So if you look at it, there's... Verse 9 contains several important considerations concerning the prayer life of Paul, which I think we can take and practically apply in our own lives. Uh, so let's begin the message by breaking down this first section, and we'll see what God has to say uh, about not only how we, how we should pray, but for whom we should pray. So the verse begins with a connective phrase, for this reason. So the clause links Paul's prayer to the Colossian church in verses 9 to 14 with the thanksgiving he expresses for the church to God in verses 3 to 8. So in these verses he states the following. So this is verses 3 through 8. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have in all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that comes to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it. <clears throat> and come, you came to truly appreciate God's grace. You have learned from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has told us about the love and the spirit. So what's really noticeable about those verses is how much they resemble the content and structure our verses 9 through 14. So I've got a wee slide to try and uh, show, show you how they match up. So in verse 3, God prays for thanks. <clears throat> he thanks God, but again he repeats this thanksgiving in verses 12. Uh, what we see in verse 3 is that Paul's prayers continuous. He uses the phrase always, but again he repeats that in verse 9. It's not stopping. Again, pr Paul's prayer is immediate. So again, in verse 6, it says, since the day you heard. In verse 9, it says, since the day we heard. Uh, it's, and again, further down, you know, when we pray for you, is repeated in verses 3 and verse 9. And then verse 6 and verse 9 and 10, focus on knowledge. Paul prays uh, <clears throat> in verse 6 that they thanks God that, that the church has come to have knowledge of God. And then in verse 9 and 10, he prays that that would increase. And then verses 6 and 10 are concerned with, you know, continuation of bearing fruit and growth. So it's all really interesting <clears throat> that he's did that, but it's suggested that he did this deliberately. The epistle structured in that manner as a form of subtle encouragement to the church to continue in its proclamation uh, of the gospel. So in, in other words, Paul begins the letter to the Colossian church by giving thanks for the proclamation of the good news 
and for this reason, he prays for the church using the same language of thanksgiving to continue in its efforts to expand God's kingdom. So Carson summarizes this part in his prayer when he say, states, the kind of things for which Paul thanks God are the kind of things for which Paul asks God. So there's two things that we can take from this, or that we can learn from Paul regarding the focus of our prayers, bearing this in mind. So the first one is that it's clear that he places a high value on the signs of grace and conformity to Christ in the life of believers. And crucially, he gives thanks for that. So it's worth reflecting whether you routinely look for signs of grace and conformity eh, <clears throat> and obedience in the life of your fellow believers. And if you do see it, do you pray and express thanks for that? And do you pray for a continuation of that blessing on people's lives? The second thing we can see is that it's clear from the verse that Paul's prayers for others are ongoing and continuous regardless of circumstance. There's a tendency within me, and, and possibly you can only speak for me, but I, I tend to pray for people only when things go wrong. You know, it tends to be reactive. Um, <clears throat> we might pray, pray for someone to be healed or for a conflict to be resolved or for their financial situation to improve. And that's obviously an important aspect of prayer. We should do that. But what we see from Paul's letter is an inclination to pray for others when things are going well in their lives. So Paul gives thanks to God for signs of grace in the life of the Colossian church and he prays that that continues. So it would stand to reason that an important feature of our own prayer life would be to thank God for those who we see doing well and that that blessing would continue in their lives. So yeah, that would be my, my advice this morning. A suggestion, you know, if you do see folk who seem to be blessed by the Lord within the church, just pray that that continues in their life. As verse 9 continues, Paul conveys the following clause, since the day we heard this. Now the phrase we heard suggests that Paul had never visited the Colossian church. He does not know anyone personally. So it demonstrates another important aspect of Paul's prayer life is that we should seek to emulate is that we need to pray for those we do not know and more likely never encounter. Now, on occasion, I do do that. We've did that today. You know, we've <clears throat> prayed for children within the UK. We don't know these children. We'll likely never meet them. But again, <clears throat> that tends to be an inconsistent feature in my prayer life. That normally only happens when it's prompted by things like reports in the media. You know, I hear about stuff. I think that's terrible. I pray about it. So I've got a tendency just to pray into situations that seem pressing at the time, but I quickly move on, you know, and it's never a constant feature in my prayer life. So, you know, <clears throat> what we're seeing here, though, is that, and that's important, sorry, let me say that, and that's helpful, because some prayer's better than no prayer. But what is evident for the, the passage is that Paul not only prays for those he's never met, but he's, he prays for those he doesn't know is unceasing. It's an ongoing feature of his prayer life. So it's a challenge, this aspect to the verse is a challenge for us all to consider how often we pray for those we do not know. How regular is that? Is it intermittent? Is it reactive rather than proactive? So that's, therefore we can ask ourselves, do our prayers tend to only focus on the needs and the issues of the people and situations closest to us? 
or do you regularly intercede for those who you do not know personally on a regular basis? You may do. I don't. But, you know, I think that's a challenge for us all to consider. The world's a big place. There's a lot happening within it. So it can be difficult to know even where to start in that regard. How do you pray for people you don't know? How do you even come across situations that you can pray into? Uh, when I was preparing this message, I came across an organisation called Operation World. I'm sure some people have heard of that. They've got a big book. But I have found their app, and I found their app really helpful. So they've got an app that you can download, and it gives you a daily notification, and it gives you prayer points for different regions of the world and what's going on in different countries. So it's one way of just getting a daily reminder, here's something happening in the world that you could be praying over. And I've been using it. And it's just something that ensures that your prayer life extends beyond the borders of your immediate circle. Uh, so if you want details about it, I can show you after the service, you can ask me. As verse 9 progresses, uh, Paul informs the Colossian church that he's not stopped praying for them. So as I've already alluded to, that's a critical aspect of Paul's prayer life. That it is unceasing, it never stops. But that's not to say that Paul spent every waking moment of his life praying. It just wouldn't have been practical. Just like you and I, he's got other commitments that would have demanded his time and his energy. But what is clear is that prayer is an essential part of Paul's day. It's something that he routinely factors into the pattern of his life. So this aspect of the verse is a sharp reminder that we need to treat prayer as a vital part of our daily life and ensure that we make space and time for it. Therefore, we love, let me ask you, is I ask myself, how big a priority is prayer? in your life? Do you do it every day? Or are you prone to neglecting this aspect to the Christian life? Are you burdened with excuses that render your prayer life inconsistent? And if you do have excuses, what are they? And are they really defensible or justifiable? For me, there's times I can say to myself, I'm too busy, I'm too tired, that they're poor alibis, and I think, and in fact I know, they mask a deeper-rooted problem of pride, self-determination, and spiritual laziness. That's the reality of it. So again, folks, with love and speaking for experience, let me be clear. To neglect prayer is to neglect your spiritual health and growth. This is important to your relationship to God as vitamins and minerals are to your physical health. To neglect prayer is to therefore neglect your relationship with God and keep, keep yourself distant from him. So unceasing prayer, constant prayer, regular prayer is paramount if you're serious about knowing God and knowing his will for your life. And that point's highlighted by Tim Keller in his following book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. And if you've never read it, I'd suggest that's a good book to, to, to turn to. So he says, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It's also the main way we experience deep change the reordering of our lives. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. I really love the last line. You know, prayer is the key to everything we need to do and be in life. So in other words, prayer is the, uh, the key to change, it's the key to growth, it's the key to worship, 
It's the key to knowing God. You cannot know God without prayer. I think it's fair to say we instinctively know that the quality of any relationship is determined by the time, the effort, the energy, and the value we put into it and we place in another person. We can only ever know somebody intimately if we're prepared to give our all to them. That's just the reality of it. And that dynamic's no different with God. It can't be. A relationship with him will only ever thrive if we invest in it. So this means that we have to be prepared, you and I have to be prepared to prioritise God, to put in the same time, effort and energy into the, a relationship with him. We must be proactive in that relationship or it will suffer. So prayer must be paramount and afforded the same status as the air that we breathe. We should not put off praying any more than we would deny ourselves oxygen. It's the key to everything we need in life, and it should be valued as such. So bearing that in mind, let me suggest some practical steps you could take to help you develop a partner prayer similar to Paul. If, you're strugg if you struggle to be consistent in prayer, as I think a lot of people do. So prioritise prayer by planning times for prayer. You know, I make dates and times to meet people m most days of the week. You know, I'll say I'll be at a certain place at a certain time, and normally I show up, unless something comes up that's unavoidable. But I, I try and be reliable, and I try and be consistent. So again, I think that's something we should do with God. You know, a time in the day that we'll, we'll agree to meet, and agree to get into prayer, and you keep that date. And if you do that, then you're more likely to turn up. So we need to be reliable and consistent in our relationship with the Lord. Another thing that you could do is form a prayer partnership. Now, I know that's not the case for everybody, but a big challenge for me is I stay myself. So I'm accountable to nobody. Nobody knows what I do away from here. Um, and, uh, and if that is the case for you, then maybe you could uh, agree to meet somebody in the church at a certain point in the week and dedicate that time to prayer. And that will keep you accountable and it will keep you in a partner that will be helpful. And if possible, attend the prayer meetings held by the church. Again, I know that's not practical for everybody if you're working and things like that, but if you can go, then try and turn up to those as well. As verse 9 uh, carries on, Paul informs the Colossian church about what it is he petitions God for on their behalf, and then he explains the reasons for this. So in verse, 10, he, uh, in verse 9 and 10 he states, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. So we can see for this aspect of the passage uh, that the basis of Paul's prayer for the Colossian church contains two key themes. So namely, believers would have a knowledge of God's will so that believers would lead lives pleasing to the Lord. Before digging into that, it's worth considering the reason why Paul wrote to the Colossian church, what his underlying motivation was. And it was prompted in part by concerns the church was becoming influenced by what was called syncretism, which refers to the blending of different religious and spiritual practices which were commonly found in the culture at that time. So Paul's prayer was a plea to the church that they wouldn't be led astray by false teachings circulating within the culture at that time. 
And instead, they would embrace the wisdom and understanding which comes from having a knowledge of God's will, so that they would lead lives pleasing to the Lord. And I only mention this because I think it's something we need to take heed, heed of as a church. The Colossian church had been proclaiming the gospel, and it was spreading the truth. It was doing a lot of great work. And Paul acknowledges that in his letter to them, and he gives thanks for the good work that they're doing. But nevertheless, it was not immune to being influenced by the culture of the day and was at risk of being led astray. I think the church is doing a lot of great work as well in proclaiming the gospel. There's lots of great things happening in the church. But we should recognise that we're not immune for being influenced by our culture either and at risk uh, being led astray. So I would suggest that our deepest prayers as a church is that we would know God intimately. For it's only by knowing him, trusting him, praising him and worshiping him that we can withstand the external influences and pressures of the day. And that's only that that will help us to lead lives pleasing to the Lord. So that's the essence of Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And that being the case, I think it's a prayer point we should incorporate uh, into our own prayer life for the church. But what exactly should we pray for in respect to our churches? We seek to lead lives pleasing to the Lord. What, what would help us to grow in a knowledge of God and begin to develop a, a more intimate relationship with Him? If we go back to verse 9, we see that Paul desires that the Colossian church would be filled uh, with a knowledge of God's will. So that's something we can pray for as a church family. But before doing that, it's important to consider what he means by God's will so that we can better understand the basis of his prayer for the Colossian church. To start with, it's important to think what it doesn't mean in, in the context of Paul's letter. Normally, when we speak of God's will, it's in regard to the direction we should take in life. Should we take a job? Should we get married? Should we move house? Should we move country? And we should consider where the Lord leads us in life. But in the context of this letter, it's referring to an aspect of God, God's will which extends beyond our temporal needs, beyond our life situation. Instead, he's referring uh, to an aspect of God's will which leads us to a greater understanding about the centrality of Christ in our lives. So for that vantage point, what is the basis of Paul's prayer for the Colossian church? So to help us, I think it's important that we turn to Scripture to help us interpret what he means by the will of God. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 to 18, we see that God's will is that we pray unceasingly with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving. It says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So one aspect of God's will is that we pray constantly and we give thanks in all situations and circumstances. So it's again a reminder when we pray like Paul does, unceasingly and with thanksgiving in our hearts, we're in step with the will of God. So something we can pray for as a church is that constant prayer would pervade our church and be characterised by joy and thanksgiving. The will of God is that we pray and pray and pray again. So let our prayer to God be that we as a church, we'll be a church who prays and prays and prays again. Uh, and to do so, we join our hearts. Again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is God's will, your sanctification. 
we rewind back to verse 9, <coughs> Paul remarks that we haven't stopped praying for you. And here he compels us to be more disciplined concerning the frequency of our prayers uh, in everyday life. However, this phrase, we haven't stopped praying for you, can also be construed as a call to pray unceasingly for those things which are critical to the Christian life. And if our sanctification is the will of God, then this most definitely would seem a critical aspect to the Christian life and something that we should continually pray over. Now, I recognise probably most people in the room and, and maybe online <coughs> know what I mean by the term sanctification, but I thought it would be useful to define it just in case somebody doesn't. Uh, so according to Wayne Grudem, sanctification can be understood as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So sanctification concerns change and growth as we become ever more Christ-like. So there's no higher calling in a Christian life to yield than to yield yourself to God and to be transformed by the Spirit so that we might become more and more like the image of Christ Jesus. That is a pro that's the process of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. So I would suggest that praying and petitioning God for the sanctification of yourself, but also as a church, should be a constant aspect of our prayer life. We should pray that we would be changed, but we should pray that our fellow believers would be sanctified, and that should be a constant feature of our prayer life. The doctrine of sanctification also links, albeit indirectly, to the following passage, in which we are encouraged to reject the, normal, the norms and values of our time and instead embrace those which reflect the will of God. So Paul writes in Romans 2.12, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing and perfect will of God. So God's will is that we don't hold to the conventions of our time. He desires that our minds would be repaired and restored so that we're able to recognize his ways are perfect and to be followed. So just put simply, God, God's will is that we recognize his ways are better than our own ways. So my encouragement may be that we pray for one another and never lose sight of that great truth so that we can all establish a part of my life which is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. May the folks need a wee drink. <clears throat> so just to summarise all that, I know there's tons in that, but Paul prays that the believer would be filled with a knowledge of God's will so that they would lead a life worthy of the Lord pleasing to him. But again, such a life uh, <clears throat> is a high calling, and it's characterized by the following traits, which uh, Paul outlines in verses 10 to 11. So here he says, Bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. So again, these are traits that we can pray over and ask God to establish in our own lives, but also in the lives of our fellow believers. So let's look at them individually. So the first one is to bear fruit in every good work. So Paul cannot imagine a life, a Christian life, which does not focus in meeting the temporal and spiritual needs of other people. We're saved by grace through faith, not works, but we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which has been which have been prepared for us in advance. So we can pray for one another to be filled with a knowledge of God's will so that we're able to bear fruit in our efforts to expand God's kingdom. The second trait is increasing knowledge of God. So Paul initially prays <coughs> with, uh, for the believers within the Colossian church to, to have a knowledge of God's will. But he repeats a similar clause in verse 10 for them to have increasing knowledge of God. So in doing that, he indicates that there's a relationship that exists between knowing God's will and having an increasing knowledge of God. So this suggests that we need to have a knowledge of God's will so that we can follow and obey this, which in turn enables us to grow in our understanding of God. So in other words, as we come to know God's will, we'll begin to obey him and walk in his ways, and this in turn leads us to a greater knowledge of him, which fuels our growth as Christians. I think the, the NLT version of the Bible captures that, that dynamic more clearly than the CSB does. So I've put it up just so you can see it in that. So it says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then <clears throat> the way you live will always honour and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. So we have a knowledge of his God's will, which in turn helps us to know God better and better. So all that to say, we can pray for one another to grow in a knowledge of God so that our relationship with him will deepen, but will strengthen and become more intimate over time. In this way, we will lead lives which are attuned to his will and become ever more pleasing to the Lord. The next trait that's mentioned is uh, to have strength, endurance, and patience. So Paul suggests that a life worthy <clears throat> to the Lord and pleasing to him is characterized by strength, which flows from God and produces endurance and patience in the life of the believer. In doing that, that Paul suggests that it's the same power that's unleashed upon the world by the gospel is now at work in the life of the believer. I think that's really, really important. It's something I've really tried to embed in my heart. It's a hard thing to wrap your head around, but I think it's a great comfort if you can really, really take that to heart. So I try and let that sink in. The power of God for salvation is active and operational within your life, if you have faith. And God promises that no matter what comes, on him. What matter comes in this life will be strengthened by that same power so that you can endure and you can cope with any circumstance, no matter how difficult. I think that should be a great comfort. God promises to help us defend ourselves from the uncertainties of this broken world through the provision of personal qualities which flow from his almighty power. So again, I would suggest that's something we should routinely pray for each other, is that we, teach, we would know God's strength so that we're empowered and able to withstand the brokenness of a world which surrounds us. It really flows into that great truth that if God is for us, then who is against us? So I would encourage us to pray for one another that that truth is locked into our hearts. So when trouble finds you, and it will find you, 
no doubt about it, there's no escape from it. We can know that nothing will harm us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that brings us to the, the final hallmark of the Christian life, which is thanksgiving and joy. So Paul makes it known to the reader that God will equip believers with strength, the strength and endurance necessary to navigate a broken world. But in response uh, to this, we should offer praise and thanks. For Paul, that's a sign of spiritual maturity and the basis of our hope in the Lord. So writing in Romans 5, uh, verses 3 through 5, he writes, And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So no matter the situation, you know, Paul compels us to give thanks uh, to God for his grace and the knowledge that our suffering, whatever that is, will ultimately produce hope rooted in the love of God, which will never disappoint. It's a lofty aspiration, I get that. And in practice, it's really, really difficult. Uh, but I think we need to lean into the truth that it's God who strengthens us and makes that possible. It's not our own personal fortitude. It's not our own resi resilience. That strength flows for God. The same, same power that was unleashed in the world for salvation. <clears throat> so again, I would think it would be helpful for us to routinely pray for one another to experience God's power, especially in moments of crisis and pain, so that we're spiritually transformed and able to experience the hope of the Lord in those moments. Paul continues the theme of thanksgiving into verse 12 to 14. He writes, Giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So at the beginning of the message, I stated the most urgent need of the church uh, and the believer is to know God better. And this aspect of the passage confirms that God himself recognised this to be our greatest need. If you look at the verses closely, we see that Paul sketches three reasons believers should be thankful to the Lord. So, and these are, God has enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance, delivered us from darkness, and provided redemption and forgiveness of sins. So I could look at all those three areas in much more detail, but just don't have the time, it won't be possible. But what is evident from the passage is that God perceived our most urgent need concerned our rebellion, our sin, and our separation from him. And in response, he sent his son so that we would be delivered from darkness and able to share in the light of God's people. He sent his son so that we would not have to pay the penalty for our sin, but be transported from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. In short, God sent his son so it was possible for us to know him. So with that great truth in our heart, what else is there really to express joy and thankfulness that he's made it possible for us to know him? But the dynamic of any relationship involves more than one person. You know, God cannot relate to us on his own. He invites us to know him intimately, but he'll never force the invitation on us. 
So we must decide to enter into a relationship with him. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, my encouragement, which won't come as any surprise, would be you accept the invitation to know him by putting your faith in him. My encouragement to you would be to enter into a relationship with Christ, to put your hope in him. A hope which will never disappoint. A hope that will never leave you, abandon you, reject you. So if you feel led by the Lord, then please don't hesitate to step forward. I don't think that means anything for anybody in the room. But if you are online, please get in uh, contact with the church. We would be happy to speak with you more. So in a moment, I'm going to close with prayer. But before we do that, uh, I just want to take some time to invite you all to show your faith and hope in Jesus. Um, and I would just invite you to come to the table and take the, the bread and the cup. And as you do that, ju just to reflect on what it means, you know, that through, uh, through his death, Christ has provided us with the ultimate hope. He's opened the door to eternal life so that no matter what trials, temptations or pain we might experience in this life, we can rest in the knowledge that one day we'll join him in glory. He's our hope, our loving hope, who makes his presence known to us and the breaking of the bread. So please step forward during worship uh, if you follow Christ this morning. So just let me pray, folks, to close. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for our time together this morning and that we can come together to glorify your name. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work within our hearts this week and beyond and that you would minister to each of us where we need to change and grow as followers of Christ. May you help us to grow in our knowledge of your will so that more and more we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. May you equip each of us with the power, strength and patience needed to navigate the challenges of this broken world so that we might practice our faith wholeheartedly under the auspices of your will. In Jesus' name, amen.